Well, I've got uh, just some excitement, man. This week, uh, eighth or sixth, seventh, eighth graders all had their award ceremony, and so Ethan had his award ceremony on Wednesday, and uh, it was done like by 10 o'clock, and so Ethan and I finally got to see in game. So pretty excited about that. If you uh, if you are into Avengers and things like that, and it's kind of funny when you think of those sort of cinematic universes. You know, you got like the Marvel with the Spider-Man now and, and uh, the Avengers and Iron Man and all that. And you got the Star Wars universe, you know. So you got Marvel with Stan Lee and what he created and Star Wars with George Lucas and what he created and, and just how that ever expands. And I think one universe that we fail to uh, give credit to is the Sylvester Stallone universe. Uh, in which you created the Rocky universe. I mean, just think about how many Rockies there are or how many Rockies fall into that, that, uh, that, that storyline with now with the new creeds. And um, I love those sort of movies. And, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone has made a fortune off of the Rocky franchise. Those movies and stories where you've got the underdog that rises to the occasion, those underdog stories where, you know, there's some sort of uh, distress or some sort of issue and you don't know whether they're going to overcome it, but in that very last moment or last 30, 45 minutes of the movie, finally the individual rises to the occasion. And if you haven't seen any of the Rockies, uh, I mean, that's fine. I'm, I'm not going to look down on you for that. But if you have, then you've probably seen the latest one, which is uh, called Creed Two. And uh, in that movie, uh, we were watching a couple months ago, uh, Jamie and I, and, uh, you know, there, it, it follows Rocky fashion. I mean, if you're familiar with Rocky, you know, there's some, somebody rises up who challenges the champ, and, and typically the champ gets knocked down or something happens in their life where they begin to question everything. And then there's that point in the movie with Rocky and with every other Rocky's universe movie where the music starts. And if you know Rocky, you know the song. There you go. That's it. Thank you, Tommy. I mean, Tommy's like, you can't just leave it hanging right there. And so if you're from, like, I mean, when I hear that, even on radio, it's like, oh, I got it. What am I supposed to be getting ready for? You know, I mean, because, you know, at that point in the movie, something is going to happen. The tide is turning. And I remember watching Creed 2 with Jamie and we were to the point where he was starting to work out and he was going to go fight this guy that had knocked him down. And you're thinking, but where's the song? He, he can't he can't overcome what's in front of him until you hear that song. And finally, the song came on and. And uh, I don't know, for Rocky, you know, it's Eye of the Tiger or Getting Stronger. And there's a lot of similarities between Rocky the Boxer and Rahab the Prostitute. Now, her, her song may not be Eye of the Tiger, maybe Eye of the Temptress. Um, I don't know if that has the same ring to it, but she is an underdog. She is an underdog hero in an underdog story. And yet in chapter two, we see how God uses that particular type of individual and brings them and rises them up to the occasion. Uh, but we like underdog stories. We love Cinderella's at March Madness. We love when football season starts and any other team wins the Super Bowl besides the Patriots. I mean, we love these sort of things, right? You're welcome, Nick. Where's Nick? I try to give his, there you are. Try to give your team a compliment. Um, but those underdogs. So the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at Rahab uh, from the book of Joshua. 
And as you can see behind me, we're calling these five-week studies in the book of Joshua called Lessons from a Pretty Woman. And if you're familiar with the, the movie Julia Roberts was in in the 90s where a prostitute rises to prominence, well, that's Rahab. I mean, the Bible does not hide the fact that Rahab is a prostitute. It always puts that in there. Matter of fact, there's only one time in Scripture when speaking of the individual Rahab in which she is not referred to as Rahab the prostitute, and that's in Matthew chapter 1 where she's put into the lineage of Jesus Christ. But within her story, she comes from this questionable background comes from a, an odd situation, an odd circumstance, living outside the covenant of God, outside the promises of God. And yet she becomes a member of the family of God and ultimately becomes a part of the story of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to begin our study of Rahab in chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 this morning. And uh, we're going to be spending the next several weeks just focusing on not only the, the individual Rahab, but some of the things she said to the spies and how we're to understand that today in our, in our world. Let's begin reading the Word of God uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, in the book of Joshua of the Old Testament. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. When the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them the way the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when He came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If, if you do not tell this business of ours, when the, Lord, then the, when the Lord gives us a land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. Let's pray together real quick. So Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for what you're already doing, what your spirit's already been stirring in this place and in the days that have led up to this moment. We once again gather by your grace and your mercy, by the blood of Jesus Christ, into your throne room of grace, into your holiness, to join with the heavenly creatures and the angels singing that you are holy, 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 worthy of all glory and honor and strength and power. So, Father, we come before you and we ask that you do what only you can do in our hearts and our lives. You know the parts and, 
and the spots that need to be worked on, they need to be transformed. You know the things that we need to be aware of and our eyes to be able to see and the words we need to be able to hear from you. Not from me, Lord, but from you. So we come before you as your servants. We ask you to do the great mighty work in us that only you can do by the power of your spirit and your spoken word. Father, I come before you as your child and I pray for those here this morning that you want to be in a relationship with you, but they haven't begun that yet. Those who are here this morning that are still in their sin, they're here this morning to begin a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray by your mercy and grace you would reveal that to them in a very special and precious way. Again, I thank you for the time we have here. I thank you for what you're going to do. Take full control. Be our shepherd and guide and lead us to where you want us to go. And pray us on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, we're reading through the Bible, and like I said, we're going to be focused on Rahab for the next couple of weeks. And I just want to give you a few pointers as you're reading through Scripture, kind of help you with your own personal Bible study. Uh, when you come across the name Rahab, it, it is good to be aware that Rahab is used in different ways throughout Scripture. One of the most common ways that we run into is here in Joshua, when she's referred to Rahab the prostitute. But there's also places in Scripture which the name Rahab is used to refer to something else. For example, in the book of Job, Psalms, and Isaiah, when you come across the name Rahab, it's not referring to Rahab the prostitute, but instead referring to something as re- referred as a sea monster, which, re- which creates chaos amongst God's creation, particularly amongst, amongst the people. In Psalm 87 and Isaiah 30, Rahab is used for another name referring to Egypt. Then in Psalm 40, Rahab is used to speak of proud and arrogant enemies of God. And so as we read through Scripture, anytime we come across Rahab, it's good to know the context and situation. But one key God has given us throughout Scripture is when we're speaking of Rahab the individual, every time she is mentioned, except in Matthew chapter 1, she is mentioned as Rahab the prostitute. And as far as Joshua and other reference to the individual Rahab, The Bible wants us to know she, in fact, is a prostitute, which means she has a job and a duty that is not something that God blesses, nor that God uh, commends. We also have read here in Joshua chapter 2 that Rahab is a Canaanite woman. So we come into Joshua 2, and she has three strikes against her. She is a Canaanite, meaning she's living outside of the covenant of God. She is not an Israelite at this, at this point. She has not joined and believed and confessed that God is the one true God. She is a prostitute, which is something that is forbidden by God, because she is continually permitting acts of adultery. Being a Canaanite woman and not only a prostitute means that she would fall under the, the bloodline of Ham, which is one of Noah's sons, which in Genesis chapter 9 Noah spoke over him after the flood and said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. Ham's descendants ought to bring thoughts of groups and, and people that rose up in opposition to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. Ham's descendants were like Egypt and Babel, Assyria, Nineveh, the Philistines, the Amorites, Hivites, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Rahab is a woman, and though in our day and age, we may not think too much of that. We have to understand in this time, in this culture, women were seen as the weaker gender. And so we come into chapter 2, and I want us to understand this context of the world in which Rahab lives in. She is the underdog. 
And yet when you look in chapter 2, even though the book of Joshua is named after the person Joshua, chapter 2 of Joshua, the hero of that chapter is Rahab, the prostitute. Robert Hubbard writes to give us an understanding of Rahab's world that she had big disqualifications which would have separated her from the kingdom of God. She was a native-born Canaanite, which Paul refers to as a foreigner to the covenant. Her ethnicity doomed her and her relatives to certain death under Israel's policy of the Old Testament. Her religious background posed a grave threat to Israel's loyalty to Yahweh. Rahab also had a social disadvantage in an ancient world being a woman and apparently unmarried and childless. The description of her family mentions neither husband nor children of her own. She inhabited a world presided by men, politically the king of Jericho, and commercially her male customers. Worse yet, she was a prostitute and possibly a madam running her own bardello. In addition, her profession probably meant that she had few female friends, especially not married ones. Ancient society apparently accommodated her profession, but she still lived on its margins literally. There is nothing more marginal in an ancient city than a house set in its city's outer wall, which was mentioned there in verse 15. So the odds are stacked against Rahab professionally, religiously, politically, ethnically, socially. Scripture alludes that Rahab might have been a successful business owner since she owned her own house, but her business was not one that was approved by God, yet let, let alone recommended by God. Yet we come to chapter 2 and we see even though the odds are stacked against Rahab, what we learn about God for our own well-being is that God removes the odds. God didn't change the story of Rahab in Scripture to make it sound nicer. He didn't just float over and say that Rahab owned a house and she was a female business owner without telling us what in fact her business was. God didn't redo the story of Rahab saying that she was a part of Joshua's covert spy mission, even though she was the one that gave critical information to the spies and what they were trying to do. God is very clear in the Scripture and throughout Scripture that Rahab is in fact a prostitute. She has lifestyle choices that do not go against the will of God. Her national allegiances are not, allegiances are not to God's allegiances, and yet she finds God's mercy. She finds His grace. She finds His love. And we see that God comes into Rahab's life and begins removing the odds. Rahab for us is a representation that God can rescue anybody. I think David Jackman wrote appropriately, says, If God can rescue a Rahab, no one is beyond his reach or his concern. This is the story of our salvation in Jesus Christ. God doesn't look at our worldly credentials or the things that we might see or others might see as eliminations from his promise. But God comes to us through Jesus Christ and His Spirit invites us all to be found in the grace of Christ. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that it is God's desire that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. So as we come to this place, the only thing that may be hindering us from coming into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, or the only thing that may be hindering us from being used by God so others might see the grace and mercy of God, is in fact our, our small view of God's love for us. It's not God's love. It's not God's mercy. God's mercy breaks down walls. God's mercy breaks down titles. God's mercy breaks down past reputations and past sins. God's love sees past those things and sees an individual worth saving. 
God comes to Rahab through the spies and the commandments of Joshua. And God removes the odds against Rahab just like God has removed the odds against us through Jesus Christ. We also learn of Rahab's values within the text here in chapter 2. She strikes a deal with the, spy, with the spies, but do you notice what the deal was? She didn't just strike a deal saying that I want my life to be saved, but she strikes a deal that, that her family would be saved. Somehow Rahab becomes aware of the impending judgment that God is going to bring upon Jericho and the people in the promised land through the Israelites. But in that moment, she isn't selfish she is aware of the situation, but she's also aware of the safety that she wants for her family. Look there in verse 10 through 13. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there's no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with myself. No, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab understood something that we all need to understand as Christians, as believers, as those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that God's salvation is meant to impact the people in our life. Rahab knew who she was. She knew she was a prostitute. She knew she was a Canaanite. She knew she was not part of this Israelite camp. She knew where she lived. She knew where she dwelt. She knew the habits and hobbies she had. Yet Rahab understood that, you know what? If I can be saved, me the prostitute, if I can be saved, then surely everyone else can be saved in this too. And so I don't want to just save myself. I want to bring as many people that I love and I have concerns for with me into this. Rahab did not limit the love of God in this moment, even though she knew destruction was coming. But that's exactly what we can do when we fail to share of the love of Jesus Christ for the people that God has placed in our life whom we say we love. Rahab said, if I'm going to be saved, I want to get as many people in this salvation plan with me. And that's our goal as we walk through this world. We are full of people, as the Bible phrases it, have prostituted themselves to sin. That was once us. We were once a prostitute to sin. We had sold ourselves to things outside of the will of God, opposed to God's very word. But now that we've come under the banner of salvation in Jesus Christ, and we understand God's love and His grace and His mercy, and that God, if God can save a sinner like me, then He can save anybody. And since he can save anybody, I want to get as many people into this salvation plan as I possibly can because I cannot limit the love and grace and mercy of God. Rahab understood that salvation is a gift given by God that is meant to be shared. That's what we need to understand. Our salvation is not for selfishness. It's not a secrecy. It's not something to keep to ourselves. It's something we are meant to share and get as many people under our house of salvation as we possibly can. So when the impending destruction comes, which the Bible says there will be a day when God will judge the living and the dead, that they find themselves in this salvation plan. But chapter 2 also brings up some ethical issues that we should deal with. In chapter 2, and verse 4 through 7, 
The king of Jericho hears that there are some spies from Israel and they're staying at Rahab the prostitute's house. And as they come to investigate that, in verse 3, it says, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So the, the, the king of Jericho has been aware of what these men are wanting to do. But the woman, speaking of Rahab, she had taken the two men and hidden them. So she knew what she did. Yet she says, True, the men came, but I don't know where they were from. Well, that's not true. She admits that she knows where they're from later in her confession to the spies. And then she goes on to say, And when the gate was about to be closed, the men went out, and I do not know where they went. Again, not true. And so she tells them in the midst of this lie, Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Rahab lies, and it benefits the spies. She lies, and it benefits the people of God. And so we have to deal with this issue because some people read this and say, okay, then is there a time when it is okay to lie? Is it okay to lie if it's beneficial? Is it okay to lie if it's better than some other choice that we have? It is okay to lie to get out of certain situations. Is it okay to lie? Is, is there a, 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 a thin line or is there like a spot where, you know, God's absolute may not be 100% absolute. And so we can kind of have some wiggle room there. But Scripture never condemns nor commends Rahab's lie. The book of Hebrews and James commends Rahab's faith. They commend her action which is an action of faith that led to her righteousness. Nowhere, though, is Rahab's faith or righteousness accredited to the lie to which she told. She was a prostitute forbidden by God. She told a lie forbidden by God. Yet it seems like Rahab gets away with it and actually benefits what God wants to do. So is it okay to lie? And so the last thing we want anybody to do is to leave here and say that there are certain situations to which we could lie if, you know, it's for the greater good. Rahab's position seems to be this. Lie or the spies die. And throughout Scripture, there are other times where people lie for the benefit of God's people. It happens in David's own life. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we deal with this situation? But Hebrews doesn't commend the lie. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, again, can't let that part go, did not perish with those who disobedient, but she was given because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In James, it says, Rahab the prostitute, there it is again, justified by works when she received the messenger, sent them out by another way. Scripture commends two actions by Rahab, and none of them have to do with the lie. She gave lodging to the spies, and she sent them out by a safer route. So what does Rahab's lie tell us about Rahab? She had yet to fully come to understand who God was and what He wanted of her life. She understood parts about Him, and she most likely got that information from her male customers. She heard the hearsay as men came in and out of her house. But she didn't fully understand God. She didn't know God's way. She wasn't out Mount Sinai when the word of the Lord was given. She didn't have the tent of meeting to which she could go to every single day to hear the word of the Lord and give praise to the word of God. She had a little bit of information, but through that little bit of information, through the things she heard on the talk on the street and the talk in her house, she came to conclude this God is worthy 
And so he's worthy of my worship. And so what God is going to do is God is going to take Rahab and what he wants to do with us, and he wants to reshape us. God doesn't commend her lie, but eventually he invites her into his family. He adopts her as her own, and she comes to know who God is as the one true God. And God begins to reshape her and give her a deeper understanding of who he is and how to worship him and how to live a holy life that is pleasing to him. And that's exactly what God wants to do with us. Every time I open the Word of God, every time we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church is a time that God wants to come into our life, into our heart, and reshape us to make us holy, to take off and chisel off the sinful nature of ours and give us a godly nature. Every time we enter this place, every time you open the Word of God, we should open it with expectation. God wants to do something in me that I desperately need, even if I don't know what it is. Rahab was a Canaanite. She did not know the ways of God. So yeah, she got away with getting a lie. But God strictly says in his word, thou shalt not lie. That's New King James for you if you like. But God wants to reshape us. He wants to take off the stuff of this world. I had a, had a ministry friend, still in the ministry, and he was doing a revival. And uh, at the revival, if you, don't, you all know what revivals are? I mean, that's like one of those words. What? What? Uh, it was like a week-long revival happened during the night, and you know people would come, and you know people would go to church besides Sunday. It's cr crazy, but uh, anyway, you can Google it later. They actually existed. Uh, it's not a myth. But he was preaching at this revival, and it was going on in the evening. And on one particular night, the the known town drunk came to the revival. He's telling me the story, and and people knew who this guy was. They knew his lifestyle. He was he was their Rahab. At that moment, they knew his background. They knew what he was involved in. Well, he came on that particular night and he sat through the service and he sang the songs and he listened to the preacher. And at the time of invitation, this man who's known to be the town drunk gets out, walks down the aisle and comes and prays with the pastor and accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Well, as soon as the song ends and they've prayed together, my, my friend turns to the people in tents at night and says, this is so and so. And I think you all know him. And something very miraculous happened in his life tonight. And I would like for him to share with you what God has done in his life in this very moment, what we've all been a witness to. And he says, would you mind sharing with everyone here tonight what God has just done for you? And this man looks at all the people at the revival service that night and says, I got bleeping saved. He didn't say bleeping. But that's where he was at that moment. And God had to do some discipleship on some of the languages he was, and words he was going to use. But we all start there. We all start in this place. And I think sometimes we forget it the longer we were in church. We all started in this place where we knew very little. We understood there was a God. We understood that some reason he loved us, and Jesus Christ was the demonstration of that love. And so at some point, many of us accepted this love and this gift of God. And so we've been in church, and we've grown in church. I and mean, what we tend to forget is there are individuals who have yet to meet this God, and so they're not going to act like God, like we should be acting. 
instead of inviting them into salvation, instead of inviting them to church, instead of inviting them to things where they can hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, we write them off and we say, you know what, I don't think they'll come. They don't really belong at that sort of situation. You know what, Rahab did not belong to be the hero of this story, but God invited her in. And there are people in your life that others have written off and they may have even written themselves off that I, I can't be forgiven for what I've done. If you've known what I've done, God says, just come, bring them. Let God do the good work in them. And so you may have believers in your life that are doing things that are ungodly. You know what? You do things that are ungodly too. We all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all do stupid stuff at times, but God brings us this place, and it's the beauty of, of the message and the Word of God. God brings us here because He loves us to reshape us, to make us something we were not when we first arrived here this morning. This is a miraculous hour if we simply allow God to do what He wants to do in this moment. God reshaped Rahab. And what's interesting about the story of Rahab in chapter 2, if you were to jump to chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Joshua, the next individual mentioned outside of Joshua is a man by the name of Achan. And Rahab in chapter 2 and Achan of chapter 7 and 8 are in stark contrast to one another. By all means, Achan has everything that Rahab didn't. He was an Israelite. He was born into the promise of God. He knew God's word. He had the history and he, he had heard of the history of God among his people. He lived amongst God's people. He was a man in a man's world. Achan was an insider to the promise of God. Rahab in chapter 2, she's an outsider to the promise of God. Yet it's the Canaanite's prostitute who placed her faith in God, which led to a victory at Jericho. On the other hand, an Israelite man, Achan, and his rebellion against God led to the defeat at Ai. Which tells me I can physically be in the right place, but spiritually in the wrong spot. I can physically be where God is. I can physically be where God is being spoken about. I can physically be with God's people, but spiritually be far off. Rahab is an outsider to the covenant of God. She's an outsider even amongst her own people. Verse 15, we're told specifically her house was built into the city wall. Now if location, location, location was still like the rule of realty in this day and age, then the last place you want your house to be built is in a fortified city in that fortified wall. Because when and if attacks come, guess what, get hit, guess what gets hit first? The wall. <laughs> where you live. Where your house is. And so we come to Rahab and we see that even amongst her own people, she's expendable. But not to God. Not to God. To God, she's in the perfect spot. Achan, in chapter 7 and 8, he lived in the camp of God. We're told Achan was from the tribe of Judah, which in Numbers chapter 2 is the largest of the 12 tribes. 
It's also the tribe to which the Messiah was spoken to come from. If you read through those incredible passages of Scripture in Leviticus and the end of Exodus and into Deuteronomy, you see that the tribe of Judah, they lived to the east of the tent of meeting. They were on the right side of where God's presence was believed to dwell. Achan was in the midst of it. He had access to God. He was of the tribe of the promised Messiah. He had access and was inside the camp. And yet he acts in disobedience to God, ending in destruction, while Rahab experiences God's mercy and victory. And in Matthew chapter 1, the Bible points out that it is not Achan, but Rahab who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Rahab gets adopted into the family of God. Rahab gets married into the tribe of Judah. Which is a great lesson for me this week and for us this morning is no matter our past and no matter our present circumstances, God uses all people and all people can be adopted into God's promise. God's gift of salvation, promise of salvation is for all people, every man and woman, because all are made in His image and God's desires that all people would be restored to the image to which He created them for. We worship serve and are loved by God who's not interested in our social, political, ethical, or ethnic backgrounds. What God is looking for is what He found in Rahab. Submission. In Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, this is the irony of God. God uses a sexually unprotected prostitute to defeat a wall-protected city. you don't find irony and humor in that. David Jackman writes it, and I think he hit it on the, on, the, on the nose with this, that God's Word can get into any territory that the enemy holds. And when the Word of God begins to work, strong citadels will become vulnerable. And I think we need to remember that as we go out as ambassador for the kingdom of God with the Word of God inside of us, that we go out with that power that can break down the walls in our peers and co-workers and the people we love that they are living in. That power is within us. That power is accessible to us, especially in this country. That we have the power that can break down those walls. We find Rahab submitted to the knowledge she had of God, which, let's be honest, wasn't a whole lot. It wasn't first-hand knowledge. But with the knowledge she had, she submitted and God gave her the victory. Achan had all the knowledge right there for him, and yet he meets defeat. So God invites us all and, and encourages us all to be adopted in his family, but it begins in submission. The one last thing I want us to take from Rahab is that despite her lack of understanding, despite of, of what she fully understood about God and the Israelites, she was fully aware of what is surrounding her life. She was fully aware of the Israelites over there and, and the stories that had come to her ear. She was fully aware of Jericho and the type of city it was, including her own lifestyle. And yet in that moment, she became fully aware of the amazing way and grace of God. Rahab so feared Yahweh's threat on her life, Yahweh's judgment upon her, that she so feared it she ran to His mercy. And she found it. I think that's where some of us need to be, and we're going to deal with this a little bit more next week when it comes to the fear of the Lord. 
is to understand that we serve a great mighty God, but we are also going to be accountable to that great mighty God for everything that we say and do in this place. Yes, we are saved by, by grace. Yes, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. But there's going to come a day where we have to give an account for our life. What did we do in response to God's great grace and God's great mercy? Who else did we bring into this house of salvation that we have found? We're going to give account for the fruit that we bear in this life. Rahab may not have fully understood all there was to understand about God, just like we may not understand all there is to understand about God, but she understood this. He's an almighty God, all-powerful, and He's a God of love and mercy. And Rahab found that He was a God of second chances. She took a risk of faith, and she was awarded by that faith, and she becomes the underdog hero of chapter 2. Maybe you're here this morning... And you've had a rough week. You stumbled and fell. Or maybe there's just things in your life that Satan just keeps reminding you about. Rahab for us this week is a reminder that God can take all of our mess and all of our baggage and all of our stuff. And he can do great things with it. I, I, I can't hit on this point enough. Rahab the prostitute. I wonder, I wonder if, if Rahab in heaven was hearing God like dictate through his spirit to the apostles and writing this out. And that's how she's mentioned throughout the New Testament when she's talking about it. I wonder if she was thinking, you know, can we just admit that like once? You know, we, I mean, it's already there in the Old Testament. But God takes Rahab's, his, her prostitution. God takes her baggage. God takes all of her sinful past. And God uses that for, her, for his glory. And that's exactly what God wants to do in your and my life. To take our, our junk, our past our baggage and use it for his glory if you don't believe me just read the letters of paul paul frequently talks about how he was a persecutor of the church how he was the worst of sinners and yet god used his past and revealed his grace and his mercy and transformed him to be a great advocate for his salvation that's how god wants to use you there's not a person in this room there's not a person associated with this church that God cannot use, but it begins in submission. It begins by understanding how great our God is, how great His mercy is, how great His grace is, how great His love is. And because I'm aware of that, I want other people to know that. That is why God is inviting us all to be a part of what He's doing here at Harvest Hill. It's not so we can fill another spot. It's so that we can share the love and grace of God we've come to know. And we continue to grow in that. But you may be here this morning and you're like Rahab completely. And that you're living outside of God's promise. You're living outside of His grace. You've got a wall around your heart protecting things that you hold sacred. And God has brought you to this moment to invite you into a relationship with Him. But first, He's got to knock down that wall. He's got to lower your defenses. And the way He wants to do that is He, or the way He has done that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, God knows that you and I relate more to Rahab than we do to Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent to Jesus in the New Testament, which means the Lord saves. We all want to be like Jesus, but in fact, we're more like Rahab. We live amongst the people who do not please God. We have places in our life and things that we, heart, we, we hold on to. We think if we build a wall around it, we protect it. And so we're all sinful. 
Yeah, God understands that about us. He understood it so much, that's why He sent Jesus Christ to this earth, to die for our sins and rise again from the grave. And the Bible says, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone and what He has done for me, I can be completely forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. And I become a child of God. Like Rahab, I get to be adopted into the family of God and allow God to begin to reshape me and transform me into who God wants me to be. I become part of the family tree of Jesus. But if you're here this morning Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then you're not a part of that family or part of that promise. But God wants to change that today by His grace and His mercy. And so you may be like that individual. I'm not saying you're a town drunk or you have anything else going on in your life, but you may be that individual who understands, you know, I may not have it all figured out. I may not have it all together, but I know I need this. So we become this time of invitation. I'm just going to ask you to come down and say, Hey, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. Let's start there. But you may be here this morning. And we all get there. We haven't allowed God to be reshaping us and be using us in the way we should be used. We know of His grace and His mercy and salvation, but we're now grabbing other people and bringing them into our house. Maybe you can come before the Father and repent of that and say, God, use me. I submit to you. We come this time of invitation with Jackson to come up and lead us. And I'm going to ask you to respond. The Bible says that we should be not just hearers of the word, but doers. So this is the time response. why we call it time of invitation. I want to pray over you. I want to thank God for what He's done for us this morning. And then I'm going to invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you used Rahab. And you stuck her right there at the beginning of this conquest, the beginning of this promise that you had spoken thousands of years before she was even in this situation. And Lord, like... Like Rahab, we can understand because you invited us in. We're unworthy of the promise you've just invited us into and the grace you've given us. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who know that they've not been allowing you to reshape them. When we've opened your word and been in your presence, you, we've, we've just kind of come and gone through the motions, not allowing you to do the great mighty work that you want to do in our life. But Lord, transform us, as Romans 12 says we should be. Transform us so that this world can hear and see the evidence of your love coming out of our life. I pray in this moment for those who are here this morning that are either unsure or they know for a fact that they're not saved. Lord, in this moment as Satan tries to, to hold them down and keep them where they are, that your spirit would just release them and free them. And that they would walk down the aisle and they would confess that they are a sinner, but they believe you love them and you paid for that price. Lord, forgive me if I've gotten in your way. Forgive me if you alone have not been glorified. We come this time to respond for what you've laid before us and praise on your son's name. Amen.